wisdom of the world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4, the Gospel of John chapter 4. I'll be reading for you verses 16 through 26, so we get the context, uh, but we'll be focusing in the message on John 4.24. So we're going to start reading the Gospel of John chapter 4 and verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we're thankful for the revelation of yourself in your word. We pray that by your spirit today, you would reveal to us more of who you are, that we would come to love and adore you more, and, and that you would cause us to walk more faithfully in obedience. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to call you simple, you would probably be offended. Being simple in the Bible is equated with being foolishness, so you probably wouldn't take it as a compliment. Unless maybe you've been watching Marie Kondo and you're trying to get rid of all the things that don't spark joy, and simplifying is what you're trying to do. You may then take it as a compliment. Or maybe... You would take it as Ron Swanson does when he says, I'm a simple man. I like brunettes and breakfast foods. So given that this is how we use the word simple, how can I title a message divine simplicity? God, of course, isn't foolish. God isn't trying to get rid of all the clutter out of his life. Nor is he uncomplicated and not difficult to figure out like Ron Swanson. 
In fact, as we go through here today, you might have to have your thinking caps on. Uh, simplicity is a rather difficult topic when we refer to God. Today, we're going, we get this idea not just from John 4.24. There are other passages of Scripture, and we'll get to them in time. But look again with me at John 4.24. Of course, this is Jesus speaking. He says this of God, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. One of the implications here is that because God is spirit, he doesn't have a body. And extending that further, as we'll see, God's not composed of parts at all. God isn't made up of parts. Now, that's what simplicity means. God, God's not made of parts. Now, we're going to dig deeper into that, so we're going to talk more about what is simplicity. But um, just to give you an outline real quick, so we'll talk about what is simplicity. Then we're going to talk about some objections to it um, that will help, help us understand better what, I, what we do mean and what we don't mean by simplicity. And then finally, we'll talk about some uses or some applications of this doctrine. In order to explain what simplicity is, I'm enlisting my good friend John Gill. John Gill is uh, probably one, the most important Baptist theologian. He was one of the successors of, to Charles Spurgeon, so the church that Charles Spurgeon pastored in England was previously pastored by John Gill. Uh, now, John Gill's some of his followers kind of went off the rails on some things, uh, but John Gill is a, is a very helpful source. His commentaries are available online. Um, his body of doctrinal and practical divinity is excellent. I commend, I commend John Gill in, in his works to you. In his commentary on John 4.24, this is what he says about it. He says, God is a spirit and not a body or a corporeal substance. Further, he says, the nature and essence of God is like a, is like a spirit. Okay? So he, here he's sticking right to what the text says. Now he's going to explain a little further what he believes, and I think he's right, that's why I'm quoting him, <laughs> what he believes being a spirit implies. He goes on to say, simple and uncompounded, not made up of parts, nor is it divisible. So you actually can see this in our own church's confession of faith. That's what I have here um, with me. And when it talks about the doctrine of the Trinity, it's that we confess together, whenever it's up on the screen, we confess together that we believe that God exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each with distinct and harmonious offices in the great work of redemption, but without division of nature, essence, or being. You hear that word division? God's not dividable. You can't tear him up into parts. God's not composed of parts, okay? This is, what, this is one of the implications of this text, that the fact that God is a spirit means he's not made of parts. 
John Gill, this time in his body of doctrinal and practical divinity, says, God being spirit, we learn that he's simple and uncompounded being and does not consist of parts as a body does. His spirituality involves his simplicity. Okay? And then he concludes, indeed, every attribute of God is God himself, is his nature. Let me explain that a little further. In other words, when we say that God has certain attributes, we, we have to speak that way because God accommodates himself to us, okay? But God, in reality, doesn't have attributes. He is his attributes. That's why John tells us that God is love. God doesn't just have love. He is the very essence of love. love God is love. God doesn't just have wisdom. He is wisdom itself. God doesn't just have goodness. He is the very essence of goodness. So God doesn't have these things. And the reason this is important is because to think otherwise means God's divided into parts. Wayne Grudem has helpful illustrations in his um, systematic theology he talks about how, how we're supposed to think of the attributes. And a lot of times we think of the attributes as a, you can picture them as a glob of little circles. And this glob of little circles is, is what makes up God. But that's a wrong idea. God isn't just a bunch of little attributes. He's more than his attributes. His attributes equal himself is what the doctrine of simplicity teaches. Another, another bad way of thinking about God's attributes is you can, Wayne Grudem pictures God as being a circle, and then the attributes are attached as like little balls on the outside. But this, makes, this means there's something outside of God that's controlling him. Last week in Sunday school, I talked with Jeremiah about, he, he said God determined what good and uh, what evil and good is. And I, actually, I told him, being nitpicky as I usually am, that God doesn't choose what is evil and what is good. God is goodness, and so whatever he says is good is a reflection of that goodness. There's no law outside of God that controls and determines what he can and can't do. God is perfect holiness and righteousness. He doesn't need anything outside of himself to tell him that what holiness and righteousness is. He doesn't need anything to tell him what love is. He doesn't need any source of wisdom. He is wisdom itself. In fact, one of the ways of talking about this is to say all that is in God is God. So if if it's in God, if you're saying it about God, if you're saying God is good, God is kind, God is great, all of that is in God. If you're saying Jesus is God, the Spirit is God, the Father is God, they're God. That's in everything that is in God is God. But there's not a, these aren't parts of God. Okay? They can't be divided up. We'll talk more about that later. Everybody understands. Clear as mud, right? <laughs> now, John Gill goes still further 
in, in this paragraph. Then I'm going to we're going to I'm going to read the paragraph to you. Then I'm going to go through piece by piece to try to explain it a little more. So I'm trying to come at it in different directions so that you'll have a better understanding of it. So he says, however, it is certain God is not composed of parts in any sense, not in a physical sense of essential parts as matter and form of which bodies consist, nor of integral parts as soul and body of which men consist, not in a metaphysical sense as of essence and existence of act and power, nor in a logical sense as, as of a kind and difference, substance and accident, all of which would argue imperfection, weakness, and mutability. There's one of the keys at, at the very end. If we deny God's simplicity, we're, we would make God imperfect, weak, and mutable. But again, we'll talk about that a little bit later. So there's four ways that he concentrates on, on what it means that God, he, when he says he's not simple or he's not composed of parts in any sense. First, he says, not in a physical sense. And he says, as of essential parts, as of matter and form. Okay? We know what matter is, it's the stuff that we're made of, right? Form is, is like our nature, it's our humanness. Okay? All of us are human beings. What distinguishes us from one another? It's the matter, the stuff we're made of. We determine who's who by, by the things that we can see and touch and, and hear. That's the difference between us. There's no matter in God. God is, in fact, perfect form. God is perfect godness. So he's not composed of parts in a physical sense, as bodies do, nor of integral parts. That's the second one. And he, goes, he says, as a soul and body of which men consist. Men, we have two parts at least. Some people believe the Bible speaks of three parts of man, but that argument's not really relevant uh, to what we're discussing. But we're composed of two parts, a body and a soul. If you separate those two parts, there's a big problem. You're going to be dead. God doesn't have parts like that. Now, this is because one of the reasons we need to say this is, is there's a belief called pantheism that it comes from ancient Greece, that God, God is the soul of the universe, so that the universe is, is God, but the universe is the material that makes up God. God is the soul that inhabits all the universe. But this is... According to the doctrine of simplicity, this would mean that God has parts, and we have to reject that idea. For other, there's other biblical reasons to reject that as well. But this is one. Thirdly, he's not composed of parts in metaphysical sense. He says, as of essence and existence. All, most of you know I love Lord of the Rings, and I know some of you do too. Do you know what the nature of a hobbit is? If you've read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, you or even seen the movies, you know what the nature of a hobbit is, right? You know the essence of hobbitness. But do hobbits exist other than in our imaginations? 
See, there's a difference between your essence, what you are, and whether you exist. We can speak of the essences of hobbits in spite of the fact that they don't exist. But God doesn't have metaphysical parts. There's not God's essence in his existence. It is God's very essence to exist. If you were able to separate them, then that would mean God would be able to cease to exist. So God's not made of parts in that sense. He also mentions act and power, or um, act and potency is another way of saying it. Um, This has to do with potentialities, okay? When you had your cup of coffee this morning, it was nice and hot, right? But it had the, so it was actually hot, but it had the potential to be cold if the right circumstances happened, right? There were effects that could come upon it to activate that potentiality, and then your coffee would actually be cold. God doesn't have, God isn't a mixture like we are and all of his creation are, a, a mixture of act and potency. God has no potentials, and if he did have potentials, he, he could possibly change. But the Bible says God cannot change. It's impossible for him to change. So there is no potency in God. So God's not composed of parts in any metaphysical sense. And then finally, he's not composed of parts in any logical sense. He mentions substance and accidents. Um, Again, we're all human beings, right? Um, But we come in different shapes and sizes, Just because you're a different shape or a different size doesn't mean you're more human or less human. These are accidents of our human nature. You can be be short or tall. You could be skinny or large. However, but you're still a human being. These are accidents. They don't change who we really are. Um, Color would be another example, but you guys are all basically the same color. Except... Except Jim. <laughs> so, but you're still a human being, right? Your color, your color doesn't change that humanness. We're still human beings. God's not made of substance and accident. There's no accidents to God. What God is is what he is. You can't take this part out of God and God still be okay or God still be God. To do so as Gill argues, would, would argue imperfection, weakness, and mutability in God. But the Bible says that God is perfect, he is powerful, and he is immutable. He's unchangeable. And so we have to confess that God is not composed of any parts. John 4.24 isn't the only passage that hints at this. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 um, John, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Whenever the Bible speaks of God's oneness, God's unity, it's implying his simplicity, that he's not made of parts. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is another way 
similar way of saying all that is in God is God. We don't have time to delve into these texts today, but um, these are, if you want to look at these when you get home and further reflection, you'll find this. So the Bible supports this idea in these, at least these three texts and others that God is not composed of any parts. Not only does the Bible support it, but there are doctrinal foundations to this as well. There's, there's two principles of understanding Scripture. One of them Jeremiah used in Sunday school today. The one is called the analogy of Scripture. So, in other words, Scripture interprets Scripture, right? Jeremiah did that today. We were looking at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, and we went to, I believe, somewhere in Romans to help us understand what that means. We do that all the time without even thinking about it. That's a hermeneutical principle that we use. There's another hermeneutical principle that's called the analogy of faith. It's often confused with the analogy of Scripture, but it's actually slightly different. The idea is that any one doctrine of the Christian faith will not contradict another doctrine of the Christian faith. So we're not going to get the Bible teaching that we're saved by grace and saved by works in two different places. Okay? If the Bible teaches a doctrine, another doctrine is not going to contradict it. This is because God is truth, and all truth comes from God. And that truth, even though it's um, complex, doesn't contradict one another. So these doctrines that I'm going to talk about, all of us will, will agree with these doctrines. But in order for them to tr- be true, in order for them to stand, simplicity or that God can't be composed of parts. So the first doctrine is that God is independent. God is independent. God is not dependent on anything in his creation. A lot of people talk about the reason God created mankind is because he needed someone to love. While that may tug at our heartstrings and make us feel good, it's not true, and it's actually bad if it's true. That means God lacks something, and you are making up for it. It's kind of silly when you think of God, the infinite, all-powerful, almighty creator, but he needs us. God is independent, and because he's independent, he can't be dependent on any of his creation. He can't be dependent on parts. And if God's dependent on parts, if those parts fall apart, what happens to God? God falls apart. So God is independent, which means he must be simple. In addition, God is infinite. God is infinite. He has no spatial limits. God is everywhere present. And the beauty of that is God isn't just, you know, we don't have part of God here at Two Rivers Community Church and then Christian Life Center has another one, and then people worshiping God on the other side of the planet have another part of God. All of God is here with us today. All of God is with Christian Life Center. 
All of God is with people worshiping him on the other side of the planet. God can't be divided up into parts. If he were not infinite, if he were made of parts, he would be limited then by his parts. If God actually had feet, he would be limited by how far his feet can take him. If God literally had an arm, his strength would be limited by the strength in his arm and the reach of his arm. Parts limit God. And so we have to confess that he's simple. Finally, God is the creator. God is the creator. We, can, we believe that God created the universe in all that there is. If God is made of parts, that means two things. Who, that leads to two questions. Who made the parts? It couldn't have been God because then he would have had to exist before he existed in order to make the parts, and that's logically impossible. Who made the parts? The other thing is who composed the parts? Who put them together? If, if God is a creator... He can't be made of, of parts. Because, and if we deny this idea of simplicity, then we're actually, we end up in idolatry. Because we're worshiping a God made of parts, yet there's a higher being than him who made the parts and composed the parts together. You see what a serious error it is to deny this truth, though probably none of you have ever even heard a sermon on it. Although it's, it's a, not that it's being denied, but there's a difference between not knowing and being denied. God is not made of parts, and that's a good thing. I'm a material handler at work. Parts are very dependent. I have to carry them from this side of the factory to the other side of the factory. They can't carry themselves. They don't put themselves together. If they did, none of us would be working at the factory. They would just assemble themselves. Parts are very dependent. They don't create themselves. And, and to imply parts of God means that God is going to be dependent, finite, and he can't be the creator. This, is, this doctrine has very serious implications for our faith. And so we... we cannot deny them. Now, here are some common objections to simplicity. Um, number one, you're going beyond what Scripture states, and maybe you might be saying that yourself this morning. Um, in, in some degree, I would say, in one way, I would say, yes, that's true. Listen to what the, what the Baptist Confession says about the Word of God. And this, if you're interested, it's in the first article, paragraph 6. It says here, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. So there's two ways, in other words, that something can be biblical. It can be expressly set down in the Bible. In other words, the reason we say 
We're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. It's because that's what it says in Ephesians 2.8. It's as plain as day. There's nothing you can really argue with. But what verse or what specific passage teaches you that God is one being and three persons, equal in power and glory? What passage of Scripture teaches you that? None of you could find that verse because it doesn't exist. Does that mean the doctrine of the Trinity is not biblical? No. It's because it's necessarily contained in the Bible. What we see in the Bible is that there's one God. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Bible confesses that there's one God. Yet in the New Testament, we see Jesus Christ manifested as the Son of God. We see the Holy Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost. We see God revealing himself, not just as one God, but one God in three persons. And then we see through, throughout the New Testament as well that all three of these persons are co-equal and co-eternal. And so we conclude, because this is what is in the Bible, it's necessarily contained in there. We have to use reason, of course, baptized and sanctified by the Spirit. But we use reason to come to the conclusion that God is one person, or there's one God in three persons, co-eternal and co-equal, and we call that doctrine the Trinity. Divine simplicity, I believe, is a similar doctrine to that. It's not something that we would necessarily read expressly written in Scripture, but it's necessarily contained in it. And as I said, if we deny it, uh, these, doctrine, these, these three doctrines that I mentioned and others would fall apart. And the, the other popular one is simplicity comes from pagan Greek philosophy, or another way of putting it is Simplicity comes from Catholicism. Thomas Aquinas thought it up. He borrowed it from Aristotle. Now, um, truth is true no matter who it comes from, right? We see in the pages of the gospel when Jesus is confronted by someone, when Jesus confronts someone who's possessed by a demon, what do they almost always say? They say, you are the son of God. That's the demon speaking. Is the demon correct when he says that of Jesus? Yes. So even the demons sometimes utter truth. Now, that doesn't mean you ought to just automatically take everything they say as true just because sometimes they utter something that's true. Ultimately, I don't believe that simplicity comes from Greek philosophy. I think it comes from the Bible. But even if it did, that doesn't mean that it's not true. You have, you have to show that it is inconsistent with the teaching of the Bible to reject it, not just say the source is bad. Another one, and I, I just, this one, I don't even understand why people object, but if you object for this reason, maybe you can enlighten me. I include it mostly so to help give further explanation. If God is simple, one of the things I've been implying and saying is that all of his attributes are one. There are not many attributes of God because then there would be parts of God. But when we speak of God, we, speak of, we say God is love, God is wise, God is omniscient, God is all omnipotent. So when we, when we speak of God, 
we speak in a compound way. We don't speak simply of God. Again, that's because God accommodates language to us. We can't say it in a simple form. We have to use a two-part sentence, a subject and a predicate, in order to be able to speak of God. But in reality, God, if we traced it back to the source, God's attributes would be one, because God's attributes are God, and he is one. So a good illustration of how we understand God's attributes is to think of Think of a prism and the light, there's one light that shines through it. And when it hits that prism, it bends and you see many colors. But if you're to trace those many colors back, it would trace back to one light. So when it's similarly happening when we speak of God and when we speak of his attributes, we see from our perspective all of these different attributes, but we understand from the Bible, because God is one, that this is actually a, re- a reflection, of a refraction of the bending rays of God's glory that we're seeing individually. Some finally conclude that this doctrine undermines the Trinity, which is awful funny because the, the doctrine of simplicity actually undergirds the Trinity. Remember, our confession of faith says that the Trinity, God's not divisible. So the Trinity isn't one-third the Father, one-third the Son, and one-third the Spirit, and together they make up this one God. That would be um, a compounded being. That would Then God would consist of parts. And so what simplicity does is that actually guards us from slipping into polytheism. Now, we may only believe in three gods, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, but it would still be many gods instead of one. The doctrine of simplicity says, no, these three persons aren't parts of God. They are the one God. They share in his essence and nature. And I know that gets even more complicated ground, um, so I don't want to go too in-depth with that. But it doesn't undermine the doctrine of the Trinity. Instead, it upholds it. So, Given this doctrine, given this truth about who God is, how does this help us? What use is this doctrine? First of all, it helps us to interpret Scripture. I've said a couple times that God doesn't have feet and arms. um, Yet when we turn to the pages of the Bible, what do we see? God having feet and arms and wings and eyes and ears and mouth. Simplicity and that the fact that God is a spirit helps us to understand that these passages aren't speaking literally about God. They're speaking anthropomorphically. They're attributed to him um, attributes of the creature. God doesn't really have arms and legs and hands and feet, and he doesn't have wings. God is a spirit. God is simple. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have parts and if he were to have them it would mean that he was finite weak and changeable so it helps us to to understand scripture not only not only does it help us to understand those aspects where it talks about that he has a body but you know genesis chapter 6 i believe it is god said he relented or some of the virgin says he repented for making man god repented 
Did that make, mean God said, oh, well, I made a mistake? So God, it, there was something that God didn't foresee or didn't know when this happened, and God's going, oh, no, look what I've done. What am I going to do now? If we interpret that literally, we, we run the risk of that. Now, I tried to solve this problem when I was in Bible college, um, but I, I failed because I didn't take into account this doctrine. I made God a God of parts. You see, I had, I had it all worked out. That I would said the essence of God, who God is in his nature, doesn't change. But he does, but he does change his mind. See what I did there? I said God had an essence in his mind, and those things are two different things. The doctrine of simplicity says no. God and his mind are one thing. And so for God to change his mind, is it changes God. So, again, even with these passages, when God speaks of repenting or relenting, we can't understand it in a literal way that God literally is changing his mind. How exactly do we understand that? That's a great question. Um, Jeremiah will be happy to answer that question after church today. And Pastor Mac will be back this week, too, so you can ask him. So it helps us interpret Scripture. Then one of the things that happens, and this happened all the time when I was in Bible college, the evangelical church, they, they focus on practicality so much that if you don't make something practical, then it's no use at all. Um, and I, it's not that I'm against practical doctrine. I, we, I believe that doctrine is for life and we ought to live out what we teach, okay? There there are practical applications. But one of the things that this doctrine does, it may not seem very practical, like you can take this home and do something about it, is that it helps us to grow in our knowledge of God. Isn't that, isn't that enough? If all something does is teach you more about your God, the God that you claim to adore and love and appreciate and to follow, if all you did was learn something new about your Lord. Isn't that enough? In fact, I stole this from Herman Bovink. Um, Herman Bovink talks about how we teach our children science and literature and all this kind of stuff, even if they're never going to use it in their lives, right? We don't do it because we're mean and, and being vicious. We teach them these things because we think they're going to enrich their lives in some way, right? Your kids don't understand and uh, just think you're being mean and making them do busy work that they'll never use in their lives, and why do I ever need algebra? Um, if you worked with me, you would see why you need algebra. <laughs> um, if we teach our kids these things even if they're not useful in their lives, but they enrich their lives in some way, how much more should we learn the things of God? How much more would the things of God enrich our lives now and forever if we knew the things of God? In fact, God giving us any knowledge of him at all is purely of grace. God did... God revealed himself 
in both nature and his word for us. He knew himself perfectly. He wasn't doing himself by a favor by explaining who he was. He, he did it for us. God wants us to know him and know who he is. And one aspect of who he is is that he's a simple being. He's not composed of parts. We may not understand all the implications, all the ways that this will help us in our Christian life, but if we don't know it at all, there's never going to be an enrichment. That we, that we get to know the Lord is pr- a privilege. In fact, Christ says in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 that to know God is eternal life. This doctrine helps us to know God. And what happens is we, we hear about these from our pastor or a fill-in speaker, or we read it in a book or hear a preacher on the radio talk about this, and we think about it and we just can't comprehend it. And we shake our heads, and, and sometimes we just give up because it's hard. And we think, I, I just never understand this. It's actually, it's actually good that that happens. Because that means we have a God that we can't completely comprehend. I don't care if you're a new child, just a, a young child, just learning the things of God and can't understand uh, how God created the world by the word of his mouth. I don't care if you have a PhD in theology. You always end up running into this wall and saying, I can't figure it out. And that wall isn't, shouldn't discourage us. It should encourage us to worship God. It should encourage us to adore him. He is a God that's past our finding out. We can only touch the hem of the knowledge of God. We only know him in part. That's what Job confessed after all his, all, after all his complaining, after all his heartache, asking God with for God to show up, pleading for God to show up, and then God shows up and he says, I have nothing to say. I only knew <laughs> such a tiny little bit. Uh, that's what we're going to say when we finally see God. I only knew a partial tiny bit. It's because our God cannot be comprehended. Our God, we can't, we can't whittle out of wood an idol and cover it with gold or silver and, and have them all figured out and say, here is your God. Our God can't be limited to that, that little idol. Well, it could be a large idol too. It, God can't be limited to that. You can't wrap your minds around him. You're going to come to the point where you're pursuing the knowledge of God and you go, I can't go any further. That's a time to fall on your knees and adore the God that is beyond our understanding. I know this doctrine is hard. I've tried to make it as simple as I can. Uh, I believe it's important. That's why I share it with you today. This may just be your introduction. There, there are other important doctrines as well that I would encourage you to delve deep into. Thinking about the Trinity, how God is one yet three, 
thinking about how the infinite God could become man will give you an Excedrin headache. It hurts. <laughs> but it all, I hope that it will lead you to worship him. I'm thankful that God has accommodated himself to make himself known to us. The chief way he accommodated himself was in Christ. The word of God made flesh. Christ came for us and for our salvation. One of the, salvation means knowing God. We talk about whether people know the Lord or not. Jesus again said, eternal life is knowing the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God accommodates Himself to us for our edification, for our encouragement, and so that we may know Him. I pray that you know Him today. I pray that you've come to find the grace of God in Jesus Christ today, who came for us and our, for our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Indeed, it is a precious revelation to us of who you are. We pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of God, that we would know you more and more, that in our pursuit of the knowledge of God, we would look forward to that heaven when when we know you fully, And every day we'll be uncovering new wonders of your glory. I pray that that pursuit would lead us to worship the one true and living God. God is seeking the kind of worshipers that will worship him like that. I pray that by grace we may be those worshipers today.